You're listening to Halfway There, episode number 273. Felicia Song and Digital Discipleship, your online choices shape who you become, friends. All right, well, hey, friends, welcome back to Halfway There. This is the show where we have honest conversations with ordinary Christians about today's Christian experience. I'm so excited that you're here. Uh, definitely, you found this show. I know this conversation is going to be a good one and germane to all of the thoughts you're having, particularly during the pandemic. It's going to be great. So uh, can't wait to, to have that. Before we do, I want to remind you uh, two things. I don't ask you to do a lot, but if you can... Uh, support the show on Patreon. Just go to halfwaytherepodcast.com. Hit that button if you enjoy the show and you want to help keep us running. That really does help. Or just tell somebody about it. You enjoy this conversation and you're talking about community or something and shoot this link over and uh, to a friend via text or Facebook message or whatever works for you or Snapchat. What are kids using today? I don't even know. Uh, but that would be that'd be a real honor for me if you would do that. Okay, I, let's get to the conversation. I'm very, very excited because uh, I think, like I said, it's going to be germane. Uh, our guest, she's a professor of sociology who studies social and cultural impact of digital technologies. We're all wrestling with that right now. Uh, her new uh, book is called Restless Devices, Recovering Personhood, presence and place in the digital age. If you guys know me, you know the show, you know that's something I'm really invested in. Uh, our guest is Felicia Song. Felicia, welcome to Halfway There. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. I am glad to have you and to hear a little bit about your story. Okay, so I gave a really broad introduction, like we get this little tiny slice of who you are. Tell us, tell us more about who you are and where God has you right now. Yeah, uh, so uh, like you said, I teach um, at a small Christian liberal arts college uh, in Santa Barbara, California. I'm teaching sociology. Um, and uh, the work that I do here is, uh, apart from uh, my classes, is uh, has been doing research on digital technologies and really thinking about um, its impact on our um, relationships, our sense of community, and, and especially um, its impact in our church communities um, and thinking about um, what it means to be a Christian and to relate to our technologies in a way that is appropriate and, and healthy. Yeah. It's a really interesting discipleship question, isn't it? Yeah, like, totally. How, so, you know, I mean, I've, I've thought this for a long time about politics, right? Talk radio sometimes disciples more people mm -hmm. than our pastors do because they spend more time with them. Mm -hmm. How much more social media, right? So that's just 24 seven available. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah. know, it's, it's, I, I love that you um, kind of put your finger right on the issue of discipleship because I'll, I'll admit it took me a while to get there, to figure that out, um, to realize yeah. that that's basically what it's about. Right. I think uh, for a while, um, being a cultural sociologist, the focus is really on trying to understand how people um, come to imagine certain concepts or experience certain things in life like community or relationship. And, and I got into this area because I was 
observing and, and starting to think that, you know, there's something about our digital practices that is actually shaping how we even imagine what friendship looks like or imagine what community looks like. Um, but then when you start thinking about, well, what does that mean for someone who's a person of faith? Yeah. Um, then you get into the deep, right? <laughs> it's like, oh, okay. Now we, we come up against what we profess to believe within the church. Right. And we got we to gotta wrestle with that. hundred percent. You know, I, I think about all the time because I have a group of Christian podcasters on Facebook, right? And so, first of all, I'm using Facebook all the time, but also uh, my goal is to help them, right? Become better disciples and to use their platforms to help make other disciples, right? So that's, I'm always thinking about that. So yeah, this is definitely right in my wheelhouse. All right, well, so what I want to do is I want to hear some of your story and we're going to, I'm sure this will lead us right into into some of the um, topics that you that you talk about in Restless Devices. So, uh, where you're in California now, but where are you are you from there, or where where'd you grow up? Yeah, actually, I grew up on the other side of the country. I grew up in New Jersey, Northern Jersey, right outside metropolitan New York suburbs in the '80s. So it was really the glory <laughs> years. It was John Bon Jovi, yeah. Bruce Springsteen, and Z28 Camaros. <laughs> That's right. Okay. So you probably don't, I don't know if you noticed or not, but so obviously the show is called Halfway There, mm -hmm. which I always tell people is a little hat tip to Bon Jovi because, yeah. you know, <laughs> I figured if people would leave singing the song, singing Living on a Prayer, they would not forget the name of my podcast. <laughs> that was the idea. So I love that. New Jersey. Okay. Well, that's cool. What, so uh, what was that like? I mean, was it, you was a Christian family or was it like the spiritual climate? Yeah. So I actually did grow up in a Christian family. Um, I was raised going, uh, regularly to an ethnic Chinese church in Northern Jersey, um, which was founded by, um, a group of, uh, immigrants who had, who had, um, come to the United States in the late sixties, early seventies. And so there was, um, a, a very vibrant, um, Christian community there that, um, you know, we, we, we were in church on, on Friday nights and Sundays faithfully. Um, and then uh, on Sunday afternoons, all the kids did Chinese school, right? We learned Chinese. Mm. <laughs> so it was kind of an interesting mix of faith and culture, um, yeah. as a lot of immigrant churches are. Well, tell me about that, because I don't get to hear that experience very often. So I'm very fascinated. What? So you said it, you called it vibrant. Like what, what stood out to you as kind of a faith experience in that in that yeah context. um I guess when I, I use the word vibrant I I guess I was thinking that everyone is really invested right um yeah. because for a lot of people you know Monday through Friday work life or school life you were in a predominantly white environment um mm. and so going to church going to prayer meeting going to bible study going to you know worship and Sunday school was the was the one slice of your week um, where a lot of people were actually with other Chinese um, Chinese American people. And for those of us who were born in the United States, um, what we call second generation, um, mm -hmm. that was also a, a, a really valuable time to actually be with other kids um, and be with people who really understood um, what our own experiences were of growing up with parents who were immigrants who had traditional Asian 
uh, values and expectations of us. Um, but those of us growing up in New Jersey with Bon Jovi, uh, you know, John Bon Jovi and Bruce yeah, yeah. Springsteen, it was a really different, you know, we were navigating this crossover reality, right, of being American and culturally Chinese as well. Yeah, that sort of second generation is an interesting place to be, right? Because you have those two things that you're pulling together. Mm-hmm. And then typically a third generation, I mm-hmm. understand, goes more assimilated, right? Yeah. It's just kind of, kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. Well, that's that's really interesting. I haven't had the chance to hear some of that experience, so I appreciate I appreciate that. So how did what what's it like in in the your in your church context for was for finding your own faith? Like, so did that become, you know, in America, I don't know, I don't know if it was the same uh, as, as we might like the sort of Protestant, you know, white experience that I had in the Midwest. Yeah. You know, I would say it's, it's, um, the church was not denominationally affiliated, but it functioned like a Baptist church. And so we, we sang all the Baptist hymnals. We had the organ, right? Like we had, we had full immersion baptism. You gave your testimonies, you know, when you got baptized, We memorized Bible verses and had contests, uh, you know, um, just like everybody else. So, and our pastors were all um, educated from Dallas Theological Seminary, right? So it was, it was a very kind of squarely um, American evangelical faith experience in a lot of ways, which is in hindsight, you know, I didn't know it at the time as a child, right? In hindsight, that's fascinating, right? To think about what it means to have these Chinese immigrants coming to the United States, having Christianity also be a characteristic of American culture, right? Um, and also a faith journey as well, right? right? And how those things kind of intermix and and, and there's a whole... Uh, you know, uh, to varying degrees, people need to wrestle and, and figure out like what's American and what's Christian, um, right. oh, which yeah. again, is not that different from the standard white evangelical experience either. It's just more pronounced it, with different kinds of coordinates and features. Yeah. Okay. Well, those are some of the things I'm interested in because yeah, I definitely, we see a lot of people right now, uh, you know, in evangelicalism going, Hey, wait a minute, you know, asking a lot of questions. Okay. So did you, so then did you like pray with prayer, do the thing, you know, go forward, do all that kind of stuff? Or what was, what was your personal Yeah. So for me, you know, I was kind of, uh, I fell into the category of, uh, kids raised up in the church that was, you know, I was just like the good kid. I was the kid Mm -hmm. that like memorized all the Bible verses and knew everything. And like, you know, like I found nothing problematic or dissonant about the Christian message as a child. Like it was like, okay, sure. That's great. Jesus is my Lord and savior. And, and there was a point in which, um, I did, um, make, a, 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 an intentional kind of move, um, inside Mm -hmm. internally. Right. Um, to say, yes, I, I want to follow Jesus. Um, and I would say at that in my in my childhood faith, um, it was unfortunately born out of a desire not to go to hell. Um, so it was, <laughs> I get that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, so that was kind of the, the starting point. And then as I, as I kind of, uh, moved into adolescence, you know, um, and got baptized then, um, and then had to stand in front of the whole church and give a testimony as to why why I was going to get baptized. 
um, then th that story, you know, grew a little more complex as, as it does for a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, so take me through like, so where'd you go after say high school and then how'd your faith sort of develop? Were there any moments or yeah. mentors or books or something that really meant a lot to you? Yeah. So I went off to college and, um, I joined in a varsity, um, Christian mm -hmm. fellowship, um, at my college. And that was a really remarkable experience for me because it was my first time where I was engaging in Christianity with people who were not Asian um, and from all around the country. And um, it was a really rich and wonderful experience because um, while I was in college, I think um, I started to actually experience, I would say, genuine fellowship and the love of God. You know, I, I think in my childhood experience, my understanding of Christianity was fairly moralistic and um, fairly kind of rote um, and fear-driven even. Um, and so it was a such a refreshing um, kind of experience to realize that, that there was um, a reality and an experience with other Christians that was filled with um, genuine love, um, lots of fun. You know, I met people who had grown up going, doing young life, which I had never heard of. And I was like, wow, these people know how to have, have fun. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and it was, it was great. It was a wonderful education into thinking, oh, this is how I could be Christian too. Um, yeah. And so um, InterVarsity was really great to me that way, met lots of extraordinary people. Um, and then I also ended up going to, and I know this all kind of dates me, um, the local vineyard, uh, Vineyard Christian yeah. Fellowship, um, that at that time was all new, right? Like contemporary worship was like the new thing. And so that also blew my mind because I grew up in a church of organs and hymnals. Yeah. So how did that change you? Yeah. So I would say the latter part of my college uh, years was an education in one third of the Trinity. Like I had never really <laughs> right. understood or really heard much teaching about the Holy Spirit. And that just completely rocked my world. Like I just mm. had no idea. Um, and to be um, in that church with all of the um, folks there who had, who had been, um, healed and were continuing on the journey, um, and myself experiencing a lot of spiritual healing as well, um, in those times of worship and prayer was, was really, um, a turning point, um, mm. in my own journey. Yes. Okay. I say this all the time, like as a kid, you know, growing up in an evangelical, evangelical free church, you know, mm -hmm. I, same situation where like, we would say we believed in the Holy spirit, but functionally we were functional cessationists, right? We were like, Oh God can do anything he wants, but yeah. really probably he's not going to, right? There's no, there's no <laughs> such thing. Like really, what are we, you know, magicians or something, right? There was, there was no real, as far as I could tell yeah. anyway, I could, I could be wrong. I was a kid. I, yeah. I misinterpreted all that, but that's sure the way it's, it's felt to me. Interesting. So you attend this vineyard church and you're like having all these experiences. Is there, is there a moment or maybe an experience that you had with the Lord that kind of stood out to you that is like, this was a real kind of 
you know, that'd be a huge dramatic turning point or anything, but just something like that, that really kind of opened your eyes. Like, Oh, this is a thing God does. Yeah. Well, um, it, my time at the vineyard was definitely formative in that way. And, um, you know, for all the really wonderful things that my childhood and my family and my neighborhood, um, kind of laid down the foundation, uh, in me of, of who I was to become. Um, I, you know, when I got to college, I, I was carrying a lot of, um, I don't know, um, dissatisfactions, discontent, um, varying degrees of, uh, shame and, and even resentment, (laughs) um, at that point about my earlier life and, um, some experiences I had had. And so being in the vineyard was actually a remarkable place to realize, you know, that I was following a God who really wanted to free me from those burdens um, and that I didn't have to live with those and I didn't have to become, they didn't have to stay with me as, as a person and be a part of my identity. I could actually be freed um, from the past and, and those burdens and that that was again a revelation. I just, you know, I, I grew up hearing testimony stories, um, but they always were people that had, you know, externally li- lived, you know, lives struggling with deep addictions and and so forth. And I, you know, I grew up in a great home with so many privilege, with such great parents. I didn't, you know, break the rule. So I just, I never saw myself right as needing healing until I got to college and I was like, wow, I'm actually carrying a lot of stuff. Um, So yeah, Vineyard was a a really key place for me. Um, I'm really thankful for it. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's really interesting. Okay. So I find that, find that fascinating. Sounds like you found a little bit of liberation and kind of Mm -hmm. uh, a little more, maybe God became more personal to you. Mm -hmm. Would you say that's right? For sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, and very much a sense of, wow, I'm on a journey here, right? Mm. Like this isn't just believing certain propositions. It's not just, Oh, "Oh, I got a ticket into heaven. It's like, Whoa, no, I'm on a journey. (laughs) And this is going to take a while. (laughs) Right. But this is great. You know, like, I love this. This is awesome. You know? Yes. One of my goals for this show is to tell, uh, share with believers that uh, the journey is actually longer, deeper and wider than you've been told. Mm -hmm. Right. Like, because like you, I grew up where the testimony was, my life was terrible. Then I met Jesus. And now my life is great. Yeah. It's fine. <laughs> except for all the other things that yeah. happened. Right. <laughs> so there's plenty of other stuff. <laughs> and so when I started studying, that, I was like, wait a minute. Oh, okay. There's more to, to kind of get, to get through. Okay. So after, after that, where'd you go? What would you end up uh, doing or what, what happened? Yeah. So I think what was interesting about the end of college was, I I was a real late bloomer, you know, like I went to college, did my classes, but I didn't really care about my classes a whole lot. I was all about university and relationships and and all of that was wonderful in many regards. But by the end of college, I realized that um, I, I wanted to start thinking about things happening in the world. Um, And, and I realized, you know, uh, maybe I should backtrack. I took a class um, on uh, American intellectual history. I did ended up doing a paper that required on on the Scopes trial um, and ended up reading George Marsden's history of fundamentalism. Yes. And when I read that book, I was just 
dumbstruck. I, I can still see myself in the library with the book, reading it and thinking, oh my goodness, this is, this is what I grew up with. Like, I didn't know that it wasn't the, the, the labels weren't there, but it was the material was exactly the same as, as the theology and kind of um, framework of piety that I had grown up with. And to, and to realize that there was a, a historical space for all of that and language for it was, yeah. was mind-boggling. Um, and to realize also that part of that historical movement was, was at root an anti-intellectualism was also really interesting to me because I was in a pretty high-powered um, college setting. And um, I had never even thought about how my faith interacted with my intellectual life. Like, I didn't think those were connected at all, um, that, that they could be connected. Um, and so I was in a um, conversation with a friend um, who was a grad student who had actually graduated from Calvin College uh, at the time and, and from the reform tradition, which I had knew nothing about. And so he started explaining to me, wait a second, you know, the Lord is the Lord of all things. You can think about your feminist theory. You can think about all of this, all of these topics that you're learning from a faith perspective. You just, you know, like there's so many riches and the light bulb was just like bursting in my head. Like, are you kidding me? I had no idea that it wasn't just about personal piety and personal healing, but that there was a way, right, to really roll out the kingdom of God in this much grander, deeper sense. Um, and so that's when I started thinking about grad school. That's when I started thinking, I need more. I need to learn more. I need more theology. I need more um, studies in oh. Bible. I, and, and then I got to figure out what I want to think about because um, this is so exciting. I can actually think with my faith, you know? And, yeah. and so that's, that's where I got going. Yeah. It's like it opened up a whole new world for you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, man, I relate to that so much because I read that book too from, <laughs> by George Mars. Yes. In a class, in a church history class. And it was like mind blowing, right? It's like, oh, this, like it blew it up. Yeah. I have actually have a buddy. Uh, I, I hung out with him in Nashville in August uh, who has a podcast called Truce. Mm -hmm. And he um, is doing, he's going to do a whole series. I've been begging him to do this for like three years, a whole series on American fundamentalism yeah. through the lens of, um, What's the guy? Who's the guy? J uh, Brian William Jennings Bryan. Oh yeah. He's gonna he's gonna do it through the life of William Jennings nice. Bryan and show kind of that whole thing. And he was when we were in Tennessee, he went to the Scopes Monkey Trial. Okay. Like he went he went over there yeah. so that he could interview some people. Very cool. So friends, I'll put a link in there if you're not listening to the truth. You totally should be. I want you to do that flip over, and I'll put a link in the show notes. You can do that. Okay. So but George Marsden, that was that was a huge thing. So this opened up your idea of like, okay, this is. There's more here. I can think. I can, like, you're suddenly your faith applied to everything. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I and I actually ended up going to Labrie Fellowship. Um, that I don't know if you're familiar or your listeners know. are familiar with it. It's a, it's a kind of Christian retreat study center. Um, that there's uh over a dozen, I think, at this point, locations around the world. But it started. It was started by Francis Schaefer, a Presbyterian. Um, oh, yeah. pastor back in the day. Wow. Um, and he started in Switzerland um, in the Alps. And, and his his model of ministry was really to be a, a Christian space where no question was off the table. Right. And back in the 60s, he was and he, he would have folks coming through the house 
eating meals, living there. And these were folks on their way to India, right, in search of other sorts of spiritual experiences. Um, but it was always like, hey, let's just talk, you know. Um, and so the Labrie Fellowship that I attended was in um, Southboro, Massachusetts. And that's where, um, again, um, I kind of did a, a deep dive um, into spending a, a semester just just kind of learning about how you can think about you too, you know, and their music from a Christian perspective, how you can think about um, the environment from a Christian perspective, how you can think about politics, you know, and, you know, all of this was in the 90s. Um, And so it was, for me, you know, a a quick study on on a lot of reformed theology, um, given his Presbyterian background and a lot of the folks there. Um, But it was the place where I started to hone my interest in media. Um, I had read Neil Postman's Amusing Ourselves to Death, Mm-hmm. Um, and started thinking about how it wasn't so much the content of our media that impacts us, but it's really the form or the practices. Yeah. Um, and, and that's where, uh, and I was also a big YouTube fan at the time. Um, I still am. Um, <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. Great. <laughs> um, but they, they had this uh, really interesting uh, tour at the time that was, uh, they had the song called Even Better Than the Real Thing. And, and I remember yeah. watching a, a, a video kind of concert where Bonna is holding the camera to his face, all these fans just raging, looking at the big screens, not paying attention to Bono, who's like actually in front of them, but they're looking at the screens because his face is in the screen, right? And so, yep. <laughs> yep. so that's where I was like, oh man, media is doing something to us. Um, and that's what um, kind of got me on the road to thinking more about technology. Interesting. So that's where you started to go, hey, wait a minute, this is uh, shaping us somehow and you wanted to understand it. Um, so where'd that take you? Yeah. Um, so, um, you know, I, I'm one of those people that really has a wandering way in my journey and I gave my <laughs> parents, you know, multiple uh, heart attacks, I'm sure, along the way. <laughs> so what is my child doing? Um, we sent we sent her to this great four year college and now she's temping. Um, and so yeah. it took me four years to figure things out. Um, and I eventually found uh, it was actually in one of those years that I was teaching at a boarding school. Um, I was teaching history at the time, and I was noticing how my students um, were getting email accounts for the first time. Again, this is really dating me. Right. But it was just such an interesting experience for young people getting email for the first time and having the school community not have a single conversation about it um, or to even name what was happening. And that was very intriguing to me that that struck me as something that was very consistent with American society, that we are really um, enthusiastic and embracing our technologies, which, you know, there's a lot of good reason. Um, but we also don't have much capacity to know how to talk about um, what this all means. We don't have much language for it. And that started to really trouble me in my immediate surroundings in that boarding school. And so that's where um, I started hunting around for um, programs that would help me um, get some language and to think about, well, what's the history, one, of American culture in its relationship to technology? 
Um, and then what are some of the categories for thinking of this? And so that's where cultural sociology ended up being a really good place for me. Yeah, fascinating. Okay, so as you studied cultural sociology, what, how has that shaped your view of who God is? Mm, yeah. Um, that's a really interesting question. Um, it's funny that you ask that question because I usually think of it in the other direction. Oh, okay. Um, I usually think of it as how who I think God is shapes how I think about cultural sociology um, in that, um, you know, one of the premises of cultural sociology is that we, we are meaning, as human beings, we are meaning makers. Um, we we, we uh, live in a universe that, and society that is bent on creating meaning. And so a lot of the, um, the direction of these studies that we do is, is trying to understand, well, how does that meaning get constructed? And how are those meanings sometimes contested? You know, some people have different understandings of, of particular concepts. Um, and so I've tended to think about how it is that we live in a, in a meaning-filled world because we serve a meaning-filled God, yeah. uh, right? That that's, that's, where, that's where it comes from. Um, so I like your question though, how has cultural sociology impacted how I, how I view God? Well, I think there's, a, there's kind of an assumption. I didn't think of this until you were like, oh, that's interesting. Uh, but I guess I do kind of have an assumption that everything we do shapes how we see God. And I think our experiences, um, either cause us to question, cause us to, to ask or to think about God in, in different ways. Obviously, you know, I believe in scripture and like that God, God revealing himself, but I think he also does that in lots of, in lots of ways. And the way we think and what we're thinking about all the time will sort of determine how we think about God. So that's kind of my, my thought, but where, so what do you think? What, where's that? What do you think about that? I think where, where it leads me is to think about how the the social institutions that we have so social institutions is just a fancy word for our society's education systems our families our religious institutions all the the market um our the state right all of these different institutions um reflect something about um, not only who God is, but also, and, and maybe this will going to do with your question. I, I think it's it's more that it it shapes the way I think about the larger biblical narrative, right? That there is this mm -hmm. creation, fall, and redemption arc that right. we are living in, um, and that when I study society and think about its institutions, um, I'm often learning more about and going deeper in my imagination and understanding of what, you know, I, of, of trying to think through, well, what is, what is part of the created order, right? Um, what is part of the fall? Like how has, have certain aspects of our existence been distorted um, or broken? And then what I'm, you know, I believe Christians are invested in is participating in the redemption process right? right and thinking about well how does what is our role and and how do we reform our institutions in such a way that that restoration 
um, and wholeness isn't just for Christians, but is for everyone to enjoy. Um, yeah. and, and so I think, um, I'm working my way to an answer here, Eric. Um, I think, <laughs> Take I your think time. what I've come, you know, through the years, I don't think I knew this when I started my studies, but I think through the years I've come to really appreciate that we serve a God who longs for wholeness, not just for Christians, right? The ones that, that do choose to bend their knee, but for, for the whole of creation and for everyone. Right. And that is, um, I don't know, that's just really beautiful to me. hundred percent. I think that's so great. There's something that happens, at least for me, when I study, when I see other people, right? Like when I see, uh, which I can see where this would come from doing cultural sociology, like, okay, look how people, when you realize that we're all the same, right? We're all the same. We're, we're all do we all, we all have families. We all love those who are close to us. We all want shelter and food and good food, right? And, and community and like all these things, we all want that. And that's, it's, there's kind of this great equalizer uh, through that. And those, those I think are also reflections mm-hmm. of God, right? Like they're, our desire for community is because he is a community, if I could say it that way, but yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and he, ma- and he made us that way. Yeah. yeah Trinity. Great. So there you go. Right. Right. You're I, good. Oh, the hardest part of my MDiv oral paper was writing about <laughs> the Trinity. You can mess that up so many different ways, but anyway. Um, so yeah, yeah, I think that's absolutely true. I love that. Okay. I want to ask one other question and then I want to get to, to kind of what brought you to writing restless mm-hmm. devices, but have you had an experience where you felt like God was far away? You kind of, kind of grew up, you know, knowing the Lord and having this sort of just always being in the, in the church, but did you ever question that or was, did you ever go through like a spiritual desert or anything? Um, I don't think I've had that experience yet. Um, there were definitely points, um, of confusion, um, and trying to sort through, um, yeah. the different church communities I was encountering, right? So I was with the vineyard for a while and that, that steeped me in a particular theological space. And then I was learning a lot from the reformed perspective. Um, and so that was another one. And, and what I learned in that process with that was that these two communities don't talk a lot to each other. Um, because I was right. kind of in the middle of it. And so that I found really distressing, actually, um, because these were two communities that I really loved and had learned so much from um, and felt like they all reflected um, realities um, that were true. And so I would say that was probably the point at which that, that was not, you know, so that never really wavered. You know, I never wavered in my faith, per se, um, but it was just incredibly distressing um, to 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 be at this point where it was like, well, I don't know, yeah. I don't know who, who's, who's to trust, or I don't know how to learn um, and, and proceed when there seems to be this impasse. Um, yeah. That can be, that can be really troubling. Where'd you end up? Yeah. So I ended up in the Episcopal church. <laughs> <laughs> of course I was you in did. the Episcopal church for 15 <laughs> years. Um, and but that was for a very different reason, you know, like I kind of got to a place in my own journey where um, the vineyard um, kind of social cultural space, I would say, not the theological or the um, personal experience of it, the, the social cultural space of it got 
a little, um, uh, it was, it was very, it, it got strange. Maybe I'll just put it that way. It was, it was the time yeah. of the Toronto blessing. Um, if any of your listeners are, you're, you're familiar with that. And that was all very confusing to me. Um, and yeah. so I stowed away to the Episcopal church where, um, no one would talk to me. It would be very quiet. <laughs> and I could just resettle and figure out what was going on. Um, and good. the Episcopal church though, ended up being this incredible place of, of learning wholly different things of, of the worldwide Anglican communion of this deep historical tradition of liturgy, which I had no prior uh, kind of right. um, articulated experience of, and and it really experiencing the formation of liturgy was uh, a, a key part of those those fifteen years. Well, explain that because you know I come from also really low church experience, and probably most of my I'm guessing most of my listeners yeah. are like that. What? How did liturgy? Yeah, yeah, what, yeah. What you said it's formative. Like, how did that do? So, you know, the first, I still remember my first time in Episcopal Church, it was kind of like the most hilarious farce in the world. You know, like everyone's standing and sitting and kneeling, opening up prayer books and hymns. And there's just too many books and too many, like it was calisthenics, you know, like, and I was always like <laughs> half a beat behind, you know, like by the time I got to the page, they were done with the reading, you know, it was just, I was lost. But then I, I kept going. And what I found once I kept going and kind of getting into the rhythm of the patterns of what was being said, it was really good for me. And especially in that time of my life where I was confused and didn't know how to pray, to be able to lean into what these great uh, fathers and mothers of the church had written down and prayed. Um, and to lean into their words, to lean into the practices of kneeling at the time or at a particular, you know, during confession or bowing to the cross, all of that physicality was such a comfort for me in a time when I couldn't come up with the words myself. Mm -hmm. I was so empty. I was so confused um, that it was a comfort to know that I could still acknowledge what is true um, and to, to, to form my body into a place that expressed um, what I was really feeling when I had no words. Um, and to even show up, you know, later, you know, we all go to church on Sundays sometimes when we're just like checked out because um, we're preoccupied with other yeah. things. And it's great to just be in a place where, um, the liturgy carries you, right? Um, that even trusting that even when you're half checked out, that the Lord delights and honors in our showing up and <laughs> our faithfulness. Yeah. Um, and that also was has been very comforting and formative, right? Because we're not always on our A game. Um, and the liturgy's like, it's okay. Yeah. I don't we don't need you to be on your A game. We just need you to show up. And we'll help you along. Yeah. Wow. I love that. Okay, friends. So I know there's a lot of you out there who are questioning and asking a lot of questions right now. We hear a lot about the whole deconstruction, you know, what, well, whether it's a movement or not. Some people disagree, but that whole thing. Uh, and people are asking questions, certainly in light of, you know, not going to church for a year or whatever, whatever it was for you. Uh, it's okay. Like to explore a different tradition. You don't have to lose your faith entirely. Mm -hmm. Right. 
there's other there's other streams. I just picked up uh, Richard Foster's book, Streams of Living Water, because I've wanted it for 20 years, but I finally got it at the used Christian bookstore down in Inglewood. And um, that uh, there's a, there's other streams. So that's friends. That's my encouragement to you. Don't don't chuck your faith. Just go go explore a different stream. It's probably the right time for that. Interesting that you you kind of did that in various ways, yeah. right? Growing up in your kind of conservative. Yeah church going going to the vineyard and going to reformed and you kind of explored a whole bunch of them okay so all of that thank you for sharing that because i i really i find those kinds of things so fascinating i'm convinced that god uses all of it and one of the things i love about hearing these stories is all the things that's even even things that sometimes i'm cynical about i go oh god uses mm-hmm. that all right i can't be cynical <laughs> right he uses other people uh, okay, so one of those things people are cynical about now is like social media and digital everything, right? So, you, you, why this is sort of a it's I try not to ask this question, but I'm going to ask you like why this book? Like what triggered this for you to go? I got to write something about that. Yeah, well, um, you know, I've been thinking about this book for a really long time. In a lot of ways, when I started grad school, mm. I was thinking about this book already. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> um, because again it seemed like as Americans, we, and and in the church too, is that we have no, we don't have conversations about technology that aren't just complaining (laughs) Um, or or enthusiasm, like see my new iPhone, right? Um, We don't know how to think about what technology is or does. um, And, um, and we live in a culture that that doesn't create space for that. And so for a long time, I've wanted to write something that tried to be a catalyst for conversations, right? Just kind of put out some tools to say things like, you know, technology is not neutral, actually. Um, mm. Technology is designed by an industry, usually, right? Um, it's in a social context, which is not neutral. We use our technologies in certain ways. And so these sort of like basic understands of, te- of technology that other writers have, have also done really great work on, like, like Neil Postman um, and other philosophers of technology, wanting to, to write something that talked about that try to encourage deeper reflection about technology before we kind of jump all into it. Um, And also to um, write a book that stirs conversation amongst persons of faith to start thinking, well, what does being a Christian have anything to do with the way I use my social media in ways that are deeper than just, oh, I need to be nice to people, you know, like that level, (laughs) right? Because that's just so much of how the sort of surface level Christianity gets applied, right, to anything in the world, right? Like, if I'm a scientist, well, then I just need to be a a nice scientist. If I'm a banker, well, then I need to just be a nice banker, right? (laughs) And, right? And it's just pretty thin when there's just so much deeper. Um, yeah, hundred mm-hmm. percent. Absolutely. Okay. So I'm, I'm curious about, you write about, um, there's this chapter created for communion, settling for connection, mm-hmm. right? Which is kind of an interesting dynamic. What's the difference? And then like, what, what should we be striving for? Yeah. So, um, the idea of that chapter is that our technologies are really 
in, uh, in, they're efficient, convenient, and powerful tools of connection, right? There's no doubt about that. Um, and we all have enjoyed being able to be connected to family and friends that are far flung um, and um, value the connections that we have even with work and, and other uh, parts of our lives. Um, the difference that I'm trying to make, uh, the, the point I'm trying to make um, or highlight in that chapter is to say that um, what we appreciate about being able to connect with our family and friends and loved ones is just one little sliver or, or a little reflection of a much wider desire that we have for communion that is actually created and built into us. And that communion, the experience of communion is something that is not just um, having contact, you know, which is what I think connection is, it's just yeah. like having like right. a clear pathway, right, to talk to someone or see someone. But communion is actually um, being holy yourself and allowing the other to be holy themselves, right, in this mm -hmm. time or space together, right? Yeah. And so that's why I think that our relationship with God is the starting point, right, of our experiences of communion that is to be reflected in our relationships with each other. Um, and so that our longings for our digital connections are just um, a, a symptom or a signal or a reflection of this much deeper longing that we have for God. Yeah, there's a difference between being a Facebook friend and you know, the people who are bringing my family meals because my sister-in-law died like two weeks ago. Right. Yeah. Like th those people are friends, yeah. you know, those, those people are caring for us. Um, and you know, there's some people online that I'm, that yeah. I am friends with, right. That I hang out with every single Tuesday, but I, when I, and when I saw them in person, we gave each other hugs, right. Because that was like, Oh, we know yeah. each other. Um, which is, which is interesting. Do you, so what was your take on church's response to COVID? <laughs> you know, um, I get my take, you know, I think technology, <laughs> you know, there's lots of ways in it ways. It's like, thank God for technology, right. There in, in many regards, yeah. um, because it enabled, many aspects of our life to continue in a limping sort of way, but it did continue. It didn't get completely cut off. And there are lots of um, genuine fruit and goodness, I believe, that, that came out of that. Um, at the same time, um, I think it's, one, a mistake to... Um, think that the band-aids better than um the 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 actual or, or you know the kind of second best um is is better than than what um i i do think um church community experience is supposed to be um and i think it's also um and, and i think we all 
know that deep inside, like everyone wants to get together in the end, you know, like most people aren't like, uh, I mean, I know there are some people and there are some people who are living circumstances where like doing YouTube church has actually been great, you know, because they're housebound or they're Mm -hmm. limited, you know, and so that's for real. Um, and, and I think that's one of the goods to, to, you know, for church communities to think through, like, how do we reach out to that part of our community? But at the same time, I think most of us coming through the pandemic so far recognize the ways in which being in person with each other is qualitatively different and valuable. Um, I guess I'll just toss in one more thing, um, which I think is the more provocative uh, angle to move into. Mm-hmm is that when I do have those conversations with people who are like, thank God for technology, like we would never have made it through the pandemic, right? Like those kinds of conversations. If I'm feeling confident enough <laughs> in that relationship, <laughs> I'll often kind of agree, like, cause I do agree. Like I am so thankful I could keep working my particular job. I could keep going to my particular, you know, there's so many good things, um, yeah. but, at the same time, I think we cannot let go of the question in our head about, well, what would have happened if we didn't have this technology? Yeah. Because we never went down that path. We don't know. Like, would I have actually started getting together? with some members of my church who are closer in proximity to me and maybe we'd have a picnic, Mm -hmm. you know, socially distant, like maybe I would have done something different. Maybe I would have spent more time with my actual neighbors um, because they're close to me instead of like hungering for the time I could get on zoom with my friends and family that are right. Like, and again, this is not to take away at all from the the benefits, but it's just, it's, I think it's an interesting exercise to think through what path did we not take? And maybe there were some goods that might, we might've been forced into, right? Scarcity Mm -hmm. forces you into a lot of creativity. (laughs) Um, Yes. That's Twitter. Yeah. Right. right? And invention (laughs) and ingenuity. And we just never went there. Yes, absolutely. Very interesting thought exercise. I'll probably spend the rest of the day thinking about that, trying to figure out hmm, what would what would we have done. You know, my, I felt like like I agree. I love that we had it, and I guess you could put your church service online. That's pretty much what my church did. And God bless them. I know they were working hard. I'm not criticizing them, but man, I really wanted. Like, I think there's so much more value. Like, I for eight months or so, I did a or six months maybe. I did a zoom call after mm-hmm. church. Right. And everybody could hop on and we yeah. talked and I put people in rooms and whatever, trying to maintain some of that connection. Cause I think we do have some of those opportunities. Uh, if you're with each other all the time and you're committed to it. Um, and there were people who showed up every single yeah. week. Um, but you know, for me, like I, I, I don't know. It just sort of changed the way I look at the church service. And I'm like, you can't just broadcast that thing. Right? I agree. No, totally. <laughs> you know? Totally. Well, and I think what it, I think, uh, you know, so for, for most church communities, I actually think this is a very interesting time like now Um, Mm -hmm. uh, because this is where, you know, I listened to um, Priya Parker. She's the author of the art of gathering. 
Um, and she's been asking really interesting questions about how the pandemic forced many organizations to, you know, get online and, and redo how we gather, right, through YouTube and so yeah. forth. But now that we are able to, in many places, be able to consider getting back in person, her challenge um, to folks reading her materials um, or listening to her um, is a, a question of, well, did we learn anything from that? pandemic experience. Right. And when we gather together in person again, do we have to do what we've always been doing? It's not obvious to me right. that the ways no, we've been I doing don't... church on Sundays is the way to do it, right? Because Yes, I'm right? convinced that's one of the best things I read oddly timed, perfectly timed in like about this time of year 2019, Sky Jitani wrote a wrote an article called um uh I always forget the name. The case against sermon centric Sundays. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Good. And I was like, oh, yeah, right. okay. And he's a preacher. I didn't know he and I actually went to seminary when I was at Trinity. We were kind of there, I think, at the same time, but I didn't know him. But um, but like he makes the case like maybe we need to return to a more liturgical or communion centric, yeah. uh, Eucharistic centric yes. uh experience, yes. which I think is true because right now it's happening. The inner Information, it's odd. In the information age, information became yep. cheap. Yep, totally. Right? I don't need a dude to stand up there and tell me 45 minutes right. of whatever. What what I need is connection, human yeah. connection, physical, the physical stuff that you talked about, yeah. right? Like all of that, that's what I actually need. That's what I'm after. So, um, and I think people are learning different too. We need co yes. conversation and we really have to take that into account. My, my cousin mm -hmm. has been teaching mm -hmm. me about that. Okay, I love all that. We can talk about it for hours. Maybe sometime we should we should get together and, and do a little thing. Um, I would love uh, so I love that. So your website is your name FeliciaSong.com, right? FeliciaWooSong.com. And guys, the book is called Restless Devices: Recovering Personhood, Presence, and Place in the Digital Age. You can get that uh, certainly wherever we get books. Comes out. It'll be out by the time you listen to this. Uh, and always at halfwaytherepodcast.com. Felicia, is there anything you want to leave us with? Um, I'll just say this. A big part of the book is um, really wanting to send a message of hope to people. I think a lot of us are really tired. Uh, we feel stuck with our digital practices and obligations, quite frankly. Um, and it's just overwhelming. And I just want to give a word of encouragement um, to folks um, that um, I think especially for a person of faith there is a way forward right there are really practical ways in which um, we do not need to live under the tyranny of our technologies right and this gets us all the way back to what you said earlier about discipleship this is what discipleship is right like our Lord is our Lord right? <laughs> not the technology and the obligations those are not our lord um we we do serve a good lord um and our technologies are often um a pretty merciless and brutal um lord and so um, my hope is that folks would feel you know if they decide to pick up the book they would um be able to see and, and sense that there are practical things we can all be doing yeah. um, to move our lives in such a direction that we're living the lives we really want to live um, and, and not
getting just pushed around um, by these devices. I love that. All right, friends, pick up the book again, Restless Devices. Thanks for being here for the show. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure.